We're going to look at the birth stories uh, in Luke and Matthew and how they uh, reference what happens in the prophets. So I'm, I'm excited about this. This is going to be fun. I do have two uh, Bible Project videos to show, uh, about four minutes each. I like um, those. They're good, and these are even even better, in my opinion, because it's not just drawing, it's, it's animation. So... If you, if, you, if you were like, oh, Bell Project, this would be a little different, so maybe a little different. Okay, so I want to start off with uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And my point here is that... Um, if you look for just individual scriptures that mention all these things, that Christ died for our sins, you could maybe get that from Isaiah, the servant songs in Isaiah, um, that he was buried, Jonah. I, I mean, it's hard, it's hard if you're just thinking of individual passages. that. So part of my point is that the way prophecy works, and I've mentioned this before in a previous class, is not one-to-one, that there's one prophecy for each of the things that happens. Rather, I think it's the whole narrative of Scripture taken together. That's what he means by according to the Scriptures. It doesn't just mean there's one prophet who one time said this particular thing, which is being fulfilled. Now, we're going to see that Matthew kind of makes some connections to specific prophecies, but my contention, and I'm going to say that I'm right on this, uh, although people disagree but I'm right, uh, is they had in mind the whole story. This is how this works. It's not just individual prophecies and then look, oh, look, it, it matches. It's the whole flow of it. So that's, that's what we're going to talk about today. How does the whole flow of Scripture... So we're, we're putting all the Bible together, and I, it is, strikes me, you know, somebody who was raised not really thinking about Christmas, we, we celebrated it as a cultural holiday. But it is a good time, I think, to just kind of put the whole story together in some interesting ways. Okay, and then this road to Emmaus in Luke 24, uh, the very last chapter of Luke, uh, a great story, great way of ending his whole narrative, because the, the people, the two people that are walking, Cleopas and unnamed person, maybe Mrs. Cleopas, but who knows. Um, <laughs> they say, you know, Jesus surreptitiously starts walking along with them. And it's so funny how he's like, so what, what's going on, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> he's setting them up. So, you haven't even heard? I mean, then they say what they think. And part of what they think is we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel really cool callback to the very beginning of Luke where you have the prayer of or the song of Zechariah, you have the song of Mary, how they were talking about, oh finally the Messiah is coming, he's gonna, you know, change everything. We're gonna, you know, and, and what are their dreams about what the Messiah would look like? And then after the crucifixion, and they don't really know about the resurrection yet, they're like, man, we thought he was the one. So their all their dreams are being are they crushed? And then what do they do with those dreams once they realize, oh, it's different? So he said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? 
Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is what, verse 27, I like Luke, come on, give us some details. Uh, wouldn't that be awesome if we have what Jesus said in that little, why not, why just say he said that and not say what he said? Mm-hmm. I wish we had that. <coughs> you fill in the blank. <laughs> <laughs> And maybe, you know, maybe he thought that was self-evident to the people who were going to read it. Yeah, I guess that's right. It's, yeah. it's like uh, Josh is preaching on the book of Hebrews, and last time I read through that, the Hebrew writer says at some point, you know, I'm giving you, it's time, you really should be ready for the meat, but I'm having to go back over the milk. And then the things he mentions, I'm like, this is the milk because this I don't even understand what you're talking about. <laughs> like, what is the meat? If this is the, so maybe you're right. Maybe this is just something they were. I mean, if you number one, the early Jewish Christians maybe had all this scriptures, you know, fam, more familiarity with it, and then maybe it was kind of part of the catechism of the early church to connect all the dots and see how it, it happens and and. Now we tend to just read the New Testament and think that's the only really one that matters. <laughs> but for them, they had you know they had to connect all these dots. Maybe maybe you're right. Maybe it went without saying. Man, I'd love to have that mm-hmm. lesson plan or slideshow or whatever you have there. Hey George. Yeah. Um, I remember reading this book about called Chosen. I think that's what was the name of it. But it was about Jewish culture. And these young men would have a rabbi, and I mean, all they sounded like they did was they'd study the Torah or the Old Testament, and they sat around and argued. Yeah. I mean, it seems so foreign to me that that was their pretty much the importance of their life. They didn't have a regular job, or yeah. Am I right about that? Did they? Well, I think certain people, you know, if you're. Um, it's really, I mean, some people have mentioned that, you know, Jesus chose his disciples from fishermen, and they're the ones that are kind of flunked out of the, the rabbi schools. Because if you're really good at the, the Sabbath school, you, you get attached to a rabbi. If you, and if you're, you're not great at memorizing and all that stuff, then you would go back to your trade. This is theory. I don't know that we know all this. We're trying to reconstruct it from sources that we have. And that's really cool, because if that's the case, then Jesus kind of gets these flunkies and, and says, come follow me, and they're like, oh, I get to follow a rabbi, and he explains everything to them. And then in the book of Acts, you know, when they're talking to the priests or the leaders there in Jerusalem, they're like, oh, these people know more than we were expecting. They've been with Jesus, he said. So, is, that, is that your... Yeah, that, yeah. that just that helps me, because I yeah. just was interested in how... There was just this whole culture. Yeah, it was in the in the Torah and the Old Testament. People memorized all that, and then they just argued on what they thought. Yeah. And, and it was seen as it was a, you know, that's the best thing you could do with your time. Yeah. And if your kid was really smart, they would be a rabbi or get attached to a rabbi. And so when the the people, you know, that kind of explains when Jesus comes says, "Come follow me." If he has that rabbi persona. Yeah, of course I'm going to drop everything and follow. Makes more. I mean, it's still a sacrifice, but yeah, yeah. It kind of reminds me of sports today. You know, you try. <laughs> that's sort of the. Yeah, so your way out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
yeah, if only I studied the Bible the way I study my fantasy football team. <laughs> okay, so let's, so what we're going to do, uh, I feel like this Bible Project video on the Messiah, they're kind of going back and tracing and connecting some of these dots, so we're going to get that all out there. Then we're going to look at what they said at Luke, and, and Luke, and then we're going to go into Matthew. That's the plan. We won't get to all of this, maybe, but... Um, See if this will work. The Gospel of Luke. Oh wait, that's the Luke one. Luke. Let's go to them. This one. At the beginning of the Bible, we have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except. There's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing <laughs> is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story. When God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great-grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. <clears throat> but during these dark days there's this crazy group of guys called 
prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth. Not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here, now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. Hey, this is Tim. And this is John. We think one of the best ways to understand the Bible is to trace the key themes from its beginning all the way through to the end. Yep. Okay. What questions or thoughts do you have about that uh, summary of the Bible in four minutes or something like that? Anything stick out to you? Hit the key points pretty well. Yeah. <clears throat> It's, it's interesting to think about how it all fits together. Um, it sounds like a Greek tragedy mm. with Troy and... Um, and I don't remember... <laughs> maybe I just didn't read this, but I don't remember the big snake biting a heel of... Yeah. I don't remember that. In Genesis 3.15, I think it is. Um, the, it, the, the, it's in the, um, God talking to them about... Oh, the, the results, curses. like the curses. Oh, the curses yeah. And he says part of the thing to the woman is, I think it's a woman, oh, birth. You, are, you in pain, you will have childbirth, and then a snake will bite his heel, but he will crush his head. Okay. So that's that mutual death thing. I see. I thought that was just uh, um, Adam's curse, but not a king. Or... Right. Um and there, you know, that whole story is kind of paradigmatic for what happens. You know, it's kind of an explanation for why there's evil and then how it's going to be. And then there's that, that's the, really the hopeful thing in the, the curses, is that you will crush his head, he will bite your heel. 
which you know is dangerous, but not as bad as being having a crushed head. So it's kind of that <laughs> you will win, but there's going to be damage done and okay. not through suffering that the yeah. victory is won, which is unfortunate for us. <laughs> yeah. I don't like that part of the story. That it's not all fun. It's fascinating to me that society today is no different in a way. Um, we think we can solve problems without. Yeah. And uh, uh, I always find that fascinating. And there's a lot of people who have chosen to choose Jesus, but they fall away from it. And so it's still going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and of course, I, I think every generation probably said this, it's rampant, yeah. and, you know, and so it's kind of scary in a sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially if you set it up to where you shouldn't have to experience suffering, yeah. you know, <clears throat> yeah. if your goal is to eliminate all suffering, then yeah. people are going to get disappointed. Mm -hmm. yeah. I did notice uh, some of the Captions were misspelled. Like I said, prophet, P-O-R-F-I-T. Yeah. You know, what's that guy doing in the basement? Yeah, I know. That's <laughs> you know the thing I like about that. They don't not really. They're not spending money on their production as yeah, far as where they're doing their work. They just do it in a basement somewhere. All the money goes to making the videos, and they're not spending it on clothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go to this. What's that? You guys hate your dog or something? <laughs> I like I like them a lot, and I like that they don't they don't seem to be in it for the money. So that's good. Okay, now let's go then right to Luke one and two, and then the Gospel of Luke. Luke investigated many of the earliest eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus and then composed this account. And the story begins up in the hills of Jerusalem, the place where Israel's ancient prophets said that God himself would come one day to establish his kingdom over all the earth. In the city is the temple run by the priests, and one of them, named Zechariah, was working in the temple when he had a vision that freaks him out. An angel appears and says that he and his wife will have a son. What's this all about? Well, Zechariah and his wife, we're told, are very old. They've never been able to have children. And Luke's setting up a parallel here with Abraham and Sarah, the great ancestors of Israel, because they too were very old and could never have kids. Yet God gave them a son, Isaac, which is how the whole story of Israel began. And so Luke's implying here that God's about to do something that significant for this people once again. The angel tells Zechariah to name the son John. And then he says that this son's going to fulfill a promise of Israel's ancient prophets, that somebody would come one day to prepare Israel to meet their God when he arrived to rule in Jerusalem. Because right now, Jerusalem is ruled by the Romans. Yeah, specifically, it's governed by a man named Herod, who's a puppet king under the Roman Empire. And so the Jewish people wanted nothing more than to be free and govern themselves in their own land. So this is shocking news. Everything's going to change. God's on his way. But how is he going to arrive? 
Well, to find out, Luke takes us out of Jerusalem and then up into a small town in the hills of an out-of-the-way region called Galilee. There we find a young woman named Maria, or we call her Mary. She was engaged to be married. And then an angel appears to Mary, saying that she's going to have a son. She's supposed to name him Jesus, which in Hebrew means the Lord saves. And he will be a king like David, who will rule over God's people forever. And then Mary asks, okay, well, how is this possible? Because I'm a virgin. And she's told that the same Holy Spirit that brought life and light out of darkness in Genesis chapter 1 is going to generate life inside her womb. God is about to bind himself to humanity through the conception and the birth of the Messiah. And so Mary goes from some backwoods no-name girl to the future mother of the king. Exactly. In fact, she sings a song about how this reversal of her own social status points to a greater upheaval to come. Through her son, God's going to bring down rulers from their thrones and exalt the poor and the humble. He's going to turn the whole world order upside down. So when Mary was really pregnant, she and her fiancé Joseph had to go down to Bethlehem. Yeah, there was a decree across the Roman Empire about new taxes, and so everybody had to go get registered in the town of their family line. There were so many visitors in Bethlehem, they can't find a guest room. And so the only place they can find is a spot where animals sleep. Now nearby were some shepherds with their flocks, and an angel appears, which, of course, freaks them out. But they're told to celebrate, because tonight in Bethlehem, a savior has been born. Yeah, they're told to go and find this baby, and they'll know that it's the Messiah, because he's going to be wrapped up and laying in a grimy feeding trough. Yeah, which is pretty gross. Totally. And then these shepherds, who aren't very clean themselves, they go and find the newborn Jesus in this really dingy place, and their minds are blown. They go home wondering what on earth is about to happen. And this is all really strange. I mean, if God's really coming to save the world, this isn't how you would expect him to arrive. Born in an animal shelter to a teenage girl, celebrated by no-name shepherds. Exactly. I mean, everything is backwards in Luke's story, and that's he is showing how God's kingdom was first revealed in these dirty places among the poor because Jesus is here to bring salvation by turning our world order upside down. Hey, thanks for watching the Bible Project. All right. Thoughts on, on that? I'll get them off the screen. <laughs> so what strikes you about the fact that Jesus was put in a manger? What's, what should we learn about Jesus' kingdom from the fact that when he was a baby, he was put in a manger? is humbling. Yeah. Humble position. Not born in a palace, not put in a golden crib. We <laughs> 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 also learn the fact that there's not, this is very modern, of course, coming from money, you have no power. Yeah. I think that's all places, all times. Where's the power? And it really is a contrast in Luke's 
because he mentions, you know, in the days of Augustus Caesar. So there's the power. So where are you getting your power? In Augustus Caesar or in this manger? And the celebration was to the lower class of yeah. people. Shepherds were, didn't have to have a good education to be a shepherd. It's something you could do. You had to live outside a lot. Smelly. Yeah, Luke's Gospel, and so what we typically do in, in Christmas stories is we conflate Matthew and Luke together. Like all our manger scenes, we're going to have the wise men and the shepherds there. But we're putting those stories together. If you keep them separate, you really see that Luke's Gospel is focusing on this humility Matthew's Gospel, you have Herod's involved in it, wise men are involved in it, they're looking for a king. Um, this the more the royal side. I don't think that means they contradict. I think as a writer you get to choose what, to, what details to emphasize, and you have different reasons for emphasizing that. And so Luke wants to emphasize the humility part. Matthew wants to emphasize He's fulfilling his promises about a king. We get to put them both together, which means that he's a different kind of king. He's going to be a different kind of king. He's not going to have the power that we typically associate with money and politics and military. <laughs> I was thinking about the shepherds. Because in my mind, I think being outside and having sheep, I mean, you kind of have an idealistic... Yeah, view of it. it's kind of nice. You're on a green mountainside. And, yeah. yeah, and all the majors, you know, with sheep are coming in. It's just kind of cool. <laughs> but I guess that if I was being real, it, you know, it might be like our trash men. Yeah. You know, come in, because I think they were smelly. Yeah. And I don't think they were well respected. They weren't. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some sources that say, you know, you do not accept a shepherd's testimony in court, for example. You're not trustworthy. They wouldn't be the people you would pick if you could write the story any way you wanted to. All right. Um, what time is it now? Let's, let's go to Matthew. I don't have a video for that, but uh, so we're going to have to just do this the old-fashioned way. Okay. <laughs> well, not old-fashioned in the sense that... I do have slides. But. Okay. So, in Matthew's birth narrative, he actually... So, Luke never said this fulfills the prophecy. And it's kind of like we talked about before. I, I feel like it maybe goes without saying that they just saw all these connections without mentioning them. But Matthew has one, two, three, four, five specific places where he says this happened to fulfill what was said through the prophet. So the first, so we got virgin birth, Bethlehem, uh, Egypt, Rachel weeping for her children, and then the Naz he lives in Nazareth. So let's just, what I want to do is read what the prophet said, and then hopefully we can just... Um, we know the story well enough to connect it to Matthew. So 
This is from Isaiah chapter 7. So the situation is um, Ahaz is king of Judah, and he's kind of the good guy in the story. And then Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, they're attacking Judah. So they're the bad guys. Um, and so the people are afraid about this as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Um, so the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and say to him, don't lose heart. Um, it won't happen. I will protect you. And then uh, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Apparently that was the wrong answer. Isaiah said, here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God? Also, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. What's a curd? It's like cheese. Cottage cheese? Cottage cheese. <clears throat> I guess that's a delicacy, cottage cheese and honey. It would be soft, something you would make yeah. feed a, a small child. Yeah. Cheese curds, you've eaten cheese curds. From Wisconsin. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sweet. It, yeah. Can, it can be a lot of different kinds of cheese. Yeah, mm -hmm. okay. I think the point is he's going to be a toddler. Yeah. By the time he's a toddler, these kings are not going to be a problem anymore. This is, what, this is the setting of Isaiah chapter 7. Um, so... Um, so a few details here. The virgin will conceive. Hebrew word there can mean young maiden. The Greek translation uses the word parthenos, parthenon, which means virgin. So the, the, this shows us how prophecy works again because it's not a virgin birth in Isaiah's time. It's Someone who is now a virgin or a young woman who is going to have a, a child the normal way. Uh, when that child is born, we'll call, call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's a sign to you that God is going to keep his promise that these kings will not be a problem for you. So it, it has an application in Isaiah's time about a kid that's going to be born then. So Matthew says this fulfills what happens with Mary being called to have a child as a virgin fulfills this prophecy. So it's, it's bigger. It's not that, that Isaiah had in mind Mary and Jesus. Isaiah had a specific situation in mind. But what happens in the New Testament is God works in a similar way but the way it happens in the New Testament, this is what we call typology sometimes, is that, so the type is kind of what happens in the Old Testament, but that sets a pattern, and it gets stamped again in the New Testament. But when it's stamped again, it's the, it gets raised. Like it was this kind of normal story in the Old Testament, and then it becomes this fan, more fantastic story in the New. So the fantastic part in the New is that it's an actual virgin, literally a virgin who has a son, and then the name Emmanuel, God with us, takes on an even bigger meaning that God is actually with us as a human being in the flesh. 
does that you see I mean that's man it's just kind of hard to put all that together or to imagine what how that works I mean it's amazing that that's kind of how that works um, Did this happen in the Old Testament? Or yeah, it or happened. Was that Eli or somebody like that? that well, we don't know exactly who the virgin is. It could be Isaiah's... Well, Isaiah's, Isaiah's going to have to name his kids certain things. <laughs> when you're a prophet, as we talked about Hosea last week, you're called to do some things that aren't really convenient sometimes or you don't get your own way. Um, so the thing about this Isaiah passage too is it goes on and he, he says, Maher um, Shalah Hashbaz. It's one of my favorite names in all the Bible. I can I tell think. the way you said it. Yeah, Maher Shalah Hashbaz. All the time. Um, oh, I know that guy. Yeah, yeah he's, well, it's uh, on Anne Frank um, named her cat, Maher Shalah Hashbaz. means quick to the spoil. Oh. I can imagine a cat, you know, being quick to the spoil, but um, it's a great name for a cat. <laughs> is, that, is that true? That she yeah, she did. If you, the, in the diary, that was the name of their cat. Wow. So that was cool. Um, so, you know, Isaiah says, I made love. This is this NIV translation. I made love to the prophet. I don't know why they translated it that way. And she conceived and gave birth to a son. The Lord said to me, name him Marshall. I think this is his wife, or maybe he had two wives. But um, before the boy knows how to say my father, my mother, the wealth of Massaplaner, Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. So this... This name, quick to the spoil, quick to the plunder, is referring to Assyria coming and uh, getting rid of the northern kingdom. Um, but then, you read a little bit further, um, this is where we get, uh, in chapter 9, um, for to us a child is born. So he, he then, this Marshal Ahashbaz, becomes a symbol in some ways of the Messiah who's going to be born. Uh, so it, it turns into a messianic prophecy. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on for, and forever. This particular passage is not referenced in Matthew, I don't know that it's referenced in the New Testament specifically, but it's one that we tend to associate with Christmas, and it is a messianic prophecy that they were still waiting for. All right, so that's the virgin. We won't get through all of these, but uh, Bethlehem is uh, mentioned in Micah 5. That's the place where David was born. He's from Bethlehem. So it, you kind of connect Jesus being born in Bethlehem as, because he's from the line of David, uh, which is outside of Jerusalem, I don't know, five miles or so, I think. Making that up. I don't know exactly. <laughs> it's not a long way from Jerusalem. It could be 10. Um, then, oops, this. Um, the wrong way. The sojourn in Egypt. Um, that's in Hosea chapter 11. 
Um, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So that is specific, that's about the Israelites in Egypt and slavery and the Exodus. Um, and so Israel, by metaphor, is you know, the son of, of God. Um, and he called them out of slavery in Egypt. And then Matthew, because of what Herod's doing, um, trying to kill the baby because he knows about it from the, the wise men, um, they, uh, Joseph is told to take the family to Egypt to escape that persecution. And so Matthew says this fulfills what's, what prophet Hosea, Hosea said about out of Egypt I have called my son. Another time where it's not, it's not that Hosea is talking about the, the holy family going to Egypt. Hosea is talking about Israel being in Egypt and being taken out. But it's another typology thing. Just like God saves Israel from Egypt, he is going to save, you know, this is going to happen again. The pattern thing is going to happen again, but raised to a different level. It's the holy family in Egypt. And out of Egypt I have called my son. What do you think of that? It's the opposite. He goes, Israel be saved, not me. That's true. It's not at all. But that, I wonder, though, if they do go to Egypt to be saved from the famine, in the mm -hmm. Old Testament. Yeah. I mean, they have to go That's to Egypt. Mm -hmm. So they have to escape to Egypt maybe in that way. And then they're... But yeah, it's not exactly the same. For sure. Well, eventually they do leave Egypt. They so. do. They get saved out as slaves. It's just interesting that it is the same pattern where yeah. Egypt's involved. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I wouldn't have... I mean, I hadn't thought of that. It, and it, um, C.S. Lewis has this example of, like, as an, like, I think it's in Shakespeare, maybe, or something, where somebody's out on a limb and it, the limb breaks. And he asks the question that he says, Does a limb break because their weight was too heavy on the limb or because the author wanted the limb to break? You know, it's like, well, did, you know, did this happen because just naturally? Or is the author, God, making it happen? That's interesting to think about, too, that things that happen in history have an author that's... There's not, you know, you could just explain it with natural things, but it's really happening because that's the way the author wants it to happen. <laughs> Something like that. Which is uh, kind of where we are today as people. We sometimes don't give the credit <clears throat> to do. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. Okay. Um, another interesting one, Rachel weeping for her children. So after Herod kills the babies in Bethlehem, um, Matthew mentions Jeremiah 31.15, where um, I've surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You just mean like an Where did it go? Does anybody have the exact verse that is? I think, I, I think it was up. Okay. There it is. 15. A voice is heard in Rama. That's where, that's a town up north of Jerusalem where they, where they took a lot of the, the northern kingdom of Israel off into Assyria. 
So this is, uh, and Rachel's children are Joseph and Benjamin. She dies in childbirth to Benjamin um, around, she dies near Bethlehem. This is in uh, Genesis 35. Um, She, has, she was having great difficulty in childbirth. Don't despair for you. I'll have another, you have another son. As she breathed her last, she named her son Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. The father changed the name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, which is power. Or it could mean south. But um, Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So, um, and in the, the Micah verse, uses both of those names. Yeah. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Yeah, right. If I said that right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so her children are... So Jacob goes to... Let's see, Joseph doesn't get... Uh, this is always interesting to me. Joseph doesn't get any land. Like he's one of the 12 sons, but he, he gets... So... Levi doesn't get any land because that's a priest, so you need to replace it with two. So Joseph's two kids, Manasseh and Ephraim, get land. So Rachel's children are the northern, at least Joseph's kids are the northern kingdom, and they're the ones that are taking away into Assyrian captivity. So Jeremiah is saying Rachel is weeping for her children when this happens. And so this happens again when Herod kills the babies in Bethlehem and this fulfills the promise of Jeremiah. So you're getting a sense of how this how prophecy works. It's not one to one, it's the same thing happens again. And then the last one is Nazarene, he will be called a Nazarene. I put that's from question mark because we don't have a Old Testament prophecy explicitly that mentions Nazareth. So there's two options, either the word branch is Nazar in Isaiah 11.1, uh, which is a messianic prophecy, or um, it could just be that Nazareth, you know, we see this in John's Gospel explicitly with Nathaniel, who says, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's like, so maybe that's, you know, as one who is despised. So the fact that he's born in Bethlehem, but then is raised in Nazareth, and he's called a Nazarene. Um, comes from that despised prophecy. So that one's really hard. To, so the point is, I guess, that they read the Old Testament and it was the whole story that really leads to Jesus. It's not just particular verses that you could put together in a spreadsheet and say, see, Jesus was the one. We saw it coming. You should have seen it coming ahead of time. I mean, it's really more complicated than that. And that's, in some ways, maybe why they didn't accept it right away. Is yeah. it true that um, the genealogy of Jesus leading back to David is through Joseph? Is that right? The problem that we have is Matthew's genealogy and Luke's gene genealogy are not the same. Okay. And they, they're different from David to Jesus. Okay. They're pretty similar to David and then from David to Jesus they're different. So there's theories. Some think maybe Luke has Mary's genealogy and Matthew's has Joseph's. 
Because is he, you know, which one would you use? Um, so that's that's all theory. We don't know exactly why they're different, um, but that's one theory. Is that is that why you're at? What I mean? I was just curious. Yeah. And I think if you use Joseph's, um, I've always thought it interesting that that would actually mean that it's through the stepdad's yeah genealogy that yeah, which I think is cool. Well, the, the it does say that he'll come from the line of Judah, and there is, you know, a tribe of Judah, which would, in theory, preclude the two tribes that came from Joseph. But, you know, it, well, it, you it mean Joseph? Be. The Joseph was Joseph from the tribe Mary, of Judah, though. Not, not, the, not the old Joseph, Joseph but the oh, new, yeah, old new right, Testament yeah. Joseph. And uh, maybe we were is talking that what about you were you talking about the New Testament Joseph? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm you. sorry. <laughs> I, I was thinking of the, the, the Old Testament the Joseph, third yeah, in command in Egypt, Joseph. Yeah, because he's yeah. really the star of the end of Genesis. <laughs> yeah. But then kind of goes away. And he doesn't get a Messiah from his line, comes from Judah. And Judah doesn't do much, except he does protect Joseph when he's in the pit. Judah's the one that's like, why don't we sell him? Don't kill him. Don't kill him. Let's sell him. I mean, that's he's that's his gracious man. Like, well, that's not good. I'm going to sell him. All right. Well, I don't think we tied up all the loose ends, but <laughs> it was interesting. It is. It is interesting. What one other little note is that Judah, Judas, and Jude. Are really all the same language, are all the same name. They're just different languages, yeah. right? And so there, there is some of, there is some confusion. There could be some confusion there because it was obviously a common name. Yeah. yeah. And what I, what I'm thinking is, if you see some connections, even if the New Testament doesn't make them to the Old Testament, New Testament, I get the feeling like we're encouraged to make those connections. And there's probably more there than, than is mentioned in there. Yeah, and, and, it, and that occurs to me, too, when, you know, the Nazarene, you've got a question mark. Well, we know there are other prophets out there that we don't have the writings. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe their oral tradition had Nazarene listed, but we just yeah. don't have the writings. Yeah. It's like having John, John, and John. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much. Uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you, and uh, have a great one.